Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 11th of December 2017 and this is episode 44. It is holiday time and we will be taking a seasonal break for the festive period and will return on the 8th of January with Professor Richard Grayson of Goldsmiths College at the University of London. In the intervening weeks, we wish you all a Merry Xmas and a not-too-hazy New Year. In this episode, John Lee talks about the American Expeditionary Force and how they performed on the Western Front in 1917 and 1918. This lecture was recorded on 9th of November 2017, the lecture he gave at the Ulster Museum in Belfast. Okay, uh, good afternoon, everybody. (laughs) Everybody. (laughs) Um, We're going to talk about the uh, contribution of the American Expeditionary Force to the fighting on the Western Front in 1918. Now, we should realise in 1914, America uh, looked on the First World War as a European civil war. And of course, it had a very large German population of its own, so it was very anxious to stay out of the fight. Woodrow Wilson actually campaigned politically on a promise to keep American boys out of the war. And even the loss of American lives when the Lusitania was famously torpedoed in 1915 failed to break this resolve to stay out of the war. The, the absolutely clueless gloating of the Germans over the sinking of this uh, ship and the great naval victory they recorded it as uh, did make the Americans threaten Germany uh, with uh, war unless you stop the unrestricted sinking of ships on the high seas. And, and there were many American ships sunk by the U-boats, uh, but still the Americans would not come into the war. What apparently brought them in was the revelation uh, that a deputy minister in the German uh, Foreign Office Uh, wrote to Mexico offering German support if they wanted to recover the lost provinces of uh, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, the things they'd lost during the Mexican War of the 1840s. This is the infamous Zimmerman telegram. It was released to the Americans by the British Secret Service, uh, and there's a lovely conspiracy theory that it was actually written by the British Secret Service, (laughs) who uh, passed it on to the the, uh, Americans. I'm sure that couldn't possibly be true. Now, what might have had a stronger bearing on America coming into the war was the parlous state of the Allied coalition as it faced Germany in 1917. You'd had the February Revolution in, in Russia, of course. There had been a general failure of all the Allied offensives through 1915-16. Uh, from the 1st of February, the Germans had announced they were going to start again the unrestricted submarine warfare on the high seas. Um, And perhaps most of all, I think, is the colossal strain on the British financial system, uh, which had pretty much bankrupted itself by propping up all the allies and and, and the war effort. Um, So again, there's a fairly cynical sort of conspiracy theory that America actually came into the war to protect the vast loans it made to the other combatant nations. Uh, Of course, if Germany had won the war... America would have lost all those loans. They never would have been repaid. Uh, And and there is a school of thought that that's what really brought them into the war in April of 1917. Now, when America declared war on Germany on the 6th of April 1917, its army numbered the grand total of 135,000 men. Uh, If I tell you that its artillery numbered just 8,600 men at a time when the three branches of the British artillery, the field artillery, horse artillery and garrison artillery, numbered over half a million, okay, just in artillery alone. Um, so, and there were 120,000 men in the National Guard, what we would call the territorial force. And American politicians had very little idea of sending large armies to Europe. They uh, fondly thought that their war would be more of a support role for the combatant nations. But the Entente powers, Britain, France and the others, uh, and in fact American military, the very ambitious American military, uh, soon disabused the politicians of that idea. Uh, and then America faces all the problems that we've had in 1914 of expanding a tiny professional army into a mass citizen army, short of absolutely everything it could possibly need for modern warfare. And to give you an idea of the problems there, the, if you take the expansion of the officer corps, a, a total of about 200,000 American officers serve on the Western Front. Now, 48% of those come from the officer training corps that are associated with American universities. 13% are, come direct from civilian life as technical experts of various kinds. 
Eight, only 8% 8 of them are promoted from the ranks. So in 1918, about one-third of the British officer corps were men promoted from the ranks. So this is a tiny, tiny proportion uh, compared to the Allied uh, powers. Uh, and just only 3% only of, uh, of the officer corps come from the old regular army. Uh, Jack Pershing is named as Commander-in-Chief. His nickname was Black Jack, of course. I thought that had to do with his rather dark good looks. But I'm very sorry to tell you that it's got a much more sinister reason for that. He was commander of the 10th United States Cavalry, the famous Buffalo Soldiers. Uh, so he goes very early to France with a very clear idea in his own head of how the war should be fought. His service had been in the Spanish-American War and he chased Pancho Villa up and down the American-Mexican border in 1916. He was the only serving American officer who'd ever commanded anything so much as a brigade. Uh, so... Of the, the 5,800 regular officers, only 3,800 had actually more than one year's service. And in fact, in the American army, if you talk about an old-timer, you mean somebody who's been in the army for more than a year. Uh, now, he totally believed in a unique American way of open warfare. And he used to quote an article that was written in the Infantry Journal in October of 1914. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of it. They described that infantry under fire would leap up, come forward together and form a long line which lit up with fire from end to end. A last volley from the troops, a last rush pell-mell at the men in, like men in a crowd, a, a, a rapid making ready of the bayonet for its thrusts, a simultaneous roar from the artillery, a dash of the cavalry emitting a wild yell of victory and the assault was delivered. The brave men spared by the shot and shell all plant their tattered flag on the ground covered with the corpses of the defeated enemy. Such is the part played by infantry on the field of battle today. That was written in October of 1914 when things were going rather differently on the Western Front. He stresses that it's the firepower and mobility of riflemen that wins. Newfangled support weapons are a mere adjunct. Firepower is an aid, but only an aid. If firepower intensifies, then so much greater will be the demand to make on the infantry for its utmost effort, for the supreme sacrifice without which victory cannot be won. It is the individual skill of the marksmen and the masters of cold steel who will dominate the meeting engagements that, comprom that comprise modern warfare. And to reinforce this message, it was specifically stated that artillery has, in general, no independent role on the battlefield. Its sole object is to assist the other two arms, infantry and cavalry. Uh, to, to secure decisive results, troops must advance, occupy the hostile positions, and by vigorous pursuit, destroy and throw into confusion the hostile forces. The isolated and independent action of artillery leads to no decisive results. So this is the old debate that went on in Europe before the First World War. It's engendered by the experience of the Russo-Japanese War, uh, where uh, lots of observers, Pershing was an American observer there with the Japanese army, and came away with admiration for the zeal and courage of the Japanese infantry in their attacks. The problem is that the leadership of the American army carried these ideas with them to France in the teeth of all the experience of, of fighting on the Western Front. So when Pershing calls for US divisions to be massive, and they are twice as big as a British or a French division, uh, he was calling for huge numbers of riflemen to be available to absorb high casualty rates and to keep the battle going long enough to restore his precious open warfare. Uh, to be fair, he does allow for a very formidable um, table of organisation and effectives to a 1917 American division. They have a very powerful art artillery brigade, uh, the artillery component of an American division is 5,000 men. Remember I said that their entire artillery was only 8,600 a few years before. Uh, and they have a very, very high complement of, of guns, of field guns, howitzers, mortars, uh, huge components of machine guns. They're, they're very, very... Um, they have plenty of firepower in these American divisions. Pershing very quickly called for an army of a million men, uh, which requirement he soon doubled. By May of 1918, there were 667,000 American troops in France. That's when they started a combat role. Uh, there were 1.5 million by August, and there were 2 million by November. But the numbers of men were fairly immaterial. I mean, they just came over in ships as men. They were, they were equipped by the British and the French once they got to the, the Western Front. But the real problem, of course, is the dearth of officers and NCOs, which, held, which holds them back. 
And in fact, Pershing said that he did not think his army would be ready for real operations before 1919. As Pershing came over with his staff, the Secretary of State for War, a chap called Baker, sent over a fact-finding mission, which included the intelligent gunner Charles Summerall, that we'll mention quite frequently. Summerall immediately asked for the number of guns to be doubled, uh, and he got a very firm negative. They said no. Uh, the machine gun expert John Parker warned of a looming disaster for American infantry based on Pershing's obsession with open warfare. And someone wrote in the margin of his report, speak for yourself, John. And again, his ideas were just rejected. The Amer uh, America had sent observers over to Europe, uh, uh, working on both sides, of course, as a neutral country, they could observe the German and the Allied armies. Uh, but they tended to be fairly junior officers, um, struggling to cope with some fairly contradictory evidence uh, in, the, in the early struggles. Uh, and they simply had no impact on official American doctrine at all. When Pershing arrives in France, he's half expecting the War Department to supply him with an updated doctrine, uh, and the War Department are waiting for him to provide them with an updated doctrine. Uh, so they're in a bit of an impasse there. Meanwhile, the, uh, Pershing openly despises British and French styles of warfare. He said, the importance of well-trained infantry as the prime essential to military success uh, can hardly be overestimated. He literally derides Allied attacks that are based on the cautious advance of infantry with prescribed objectives where obstacles had been destroyed and resistance largely broken down by artillery. He, he's mocking that, that style of fighting. He left orders for training in the USA to concentrate on open warfare. Uh, he wants an aggressive offensive based on self-reliant infantry where each man is a bayonet fighter, invincible in battle. And he's writing that in 1917, after all the experience we've had on the Western Front. He actually said in August 1918, I consider some of the introduction we have received from the British to be a positive detriment. Um, he thought much the same of the French army as well. His argument was twofold. Uh, they haven't done so well so far that they, uh, they need to think they can teach us very much. Uh, and his other argument, of course, was that an American army trained to a completely different doctrine to the other allies would be easier to keep out of absorption into allied formations. But the fact is that the first two divisions over, that's the first and the 26 divisions, get no training at all in the United States and go straight under allied tutelage. Uh, and by August 1918, when the Americans already suffered 60,000 casualties, Pershing does write, perhaps we are losing too many men, and he wonders whether he might need more tanks and artillery in, the, in his battles. But the combat instructions for troops of the First Army, written on the 29th of August 1918, uh, is still all about breaking fortified positions in order to return to open warfare. Uh, with instructions to set the infantry an axis of advance and then let them push on as rapidly as possible, uh, usually towards dramatically unrealistic and virtually unlimited objectives. Um, he's simply he's aping the idea of stormtroop tactics, but without any of the intervening experience acquired by such troops to carry out those tactics. The reality of experience of the Western Front was... American headquarters trying to impose this pre-war dogma, almost this kind of national chauvinism, on, on the masses of new and uh, fairly hastily trained infantry. And the American divisions learning a quite different message from the bottom up, based on the grim common sense of modern industrialised warfare. So the first division over is, of course, the famous first division, the big red one, as it's called. And it immediately comes under French tutelage, uh, where they defied American official doctrine from the very, very start. The crack 47th French Division worked the division very hard for 10 months, uh, and the French assumed that they were all long-service regulars. Now, the 1st Division, you would, you would assume they were, but in fact, the division had been filled up with 50% of draftees uh, before it came over to France. American headquarters, again, openly disapproves of the French training, but it doesn't actually interfere in that training. So the division becomes quite good at the routine of trench warfare and were generally hampered by the massive turnover of officers. At any, at any stage in its training, 75% uh, of the battalion commanders were away on courses, uh, you know, learning other aspects of the, of the war. 
one of the brigadiers in, in the division was very, very pro-Pershing and pro-open warfare, but the divisional commander, a chap called Robert Bullard, was very up to speed with French war doctrine. And he brought in this chap, I already mentioned Charles Summer as his artillery chief, and for his um, general staff officer in, command, in charge of operations, he had a bloke called George Marshall, who uh, turned out to be quite a good staff officer, uh, and quite a good career in the army. Uh, in a, in a 140-hour training program, he gives 66 hours of that to the very latest small unit fire and movement drills. And besides a, a general favouring of firepower, he ensures that all his infantry can use the Stokes mortar and the, and the infantry guns, uh, and he beefs up his infantry companies with extra rifle grenades and extra bombers, all, all very much in line with the, the latest French doctrine. So the first ever American attack in the war was at a place called Contigny on the 28th of May 1918. Uh, part of the operations that stopped the latest phase of the German Spring Offensive. A perfectly planned, limited objective affair with the attacking regiment well stocked and carefully rehearsed with auxiliary weapons, with, with extra French help for flamethrowers and tanks, that sort of thing. There was lots of counter-battery fire and an excellent combination of artillery preparation, a violent one-hour shelling just before the attack itself, and then a slow and steady creeping barrage for the infantry to follow onto the enemy position. And the objectives were all taken in 35 minutes. Uh, the enemy were thoroughly defeated, 300 killed, 255 prisoners. Total American losses, just 45 officers and 822 men. That was only 3% of the strength of the division, about 22% of the actual attacking infantry. The infantry had gone forward in perfectly straight lines with very little uh, finesse or regard for cover. The next fight for the Americans was the much more famous one at uh, Belleau Wood, uh, arguably their most famous sort of fight on the Western Front. Here, conducted by the 2nd Division, uh, this is, a, I think, probably the best division in the American army. Uh, by the end of the war, it had taken 12,000 German prisoners, that's 19% of all the prisoners captured by the American army. It captured 343 guns, that's 25% of all guns captured. Uh, and, and it suffered 10% of all US battle casualties, which was equal to the nine bottom divisions put together. So it's a, this is a really, really experienced division. It started life with a number of difficulties. 90% uh, of its men have been in the army for less than a year. It was actually formed in France in September 1917 by the fusion of an infantry brigade and a brigade of United States Marine Corps. Its first uh, commander, a chap called James Harbord, was a, th a real Pershing man, a real open warfare, uh, true believer. Uh, and this is what he said uh, as his division was preparing for combat. The war would never be won by troops of both sides remaining in parallel trenches, separated by a few hundred yards. Someday, someone somewhere would come out of his trenches and start forward, and thus a stalemate would be broken, and the war would eventually be won. When even one soldier climbed out and moved to the front, the adventure for him became open warfare and the essentials of minor tactics were in play. This, uh, I mean, I don't know what you thought of the 1st of July 1916 when a lot of British soldiers got out of trenches and moved forward uh, and um, open warfare did not come into play, as you, as you all well know. Now, fortunately, in its early training, uh, it, was all, it was all in the hands of very good French divisions, and that the open warfare component ordered by American headquarters was interrupted by the German offensives, and so the division rushed off to the front at Chateau Thierry. But here, I mean, listen to this. On the 18th of May 1918, one of the staff officers of the 2nd Division said, in some cases, the enemy deployment may be so dense that the old-time shoulder-to-shoulder function will be required. Uh, I mean, he's talking about men fighting shoulder to shoulder as if they were at Bull Run or Gettysburg. Uh, what he really means is that if the enemy puts up a fight, you've got to be ready to throw masses of infantry at them to batter them down and push through. So the division comes into line on the 2nd of June, ignores the terribly despondent French, telling them to retreat at once. That's where you get the famous phrase, retreat, hell, we just got here. Uh, possibly the, the greatest contribution of the arrival of the Americans is the enormous boost they give to the morale of some very, very war-weary allies. The Germans are particularly anxious to see the Americans suffer an early defeat. Uh, Ludendorff specifically tells his front commanders to hit the Americans particularly hard. Uh, America is on trial. It's hard to convey the extent to which the Germans dismiss the Americans as a fighting force, which is very stupid of them, of course. So the first attack 
was to take ground in front of Bellow Wood. Lovely open terrain here, little in the way of formal trenches, ideal country for Pershing's idea of open warfare. And Harbord's attack pan pays scant attention to artillery, arguing that preparatory fire will only attract attention to the attack. Um, so there would be no rolling barrage, just a five-minute hurricane bombardment at the start of the attack. It goes in on the 6th of June, goes in at about quarter to four in the morning. The marine infantry advance in perfect linear waves, uh, but they are delighted to have uh, taken all their objectives by about seven o'clock, when cons- they make no reference to the very severe losses that they'd suffered in doing that. Here's the problem then. At two o'clock in the afternoon, a vindicated Harvard, vindicated on the idea of open warfare, uh, orders another attack to go in at five o'clock with even less artillery preparation than, than they'd had in the morning. He thinks that a surprise attack is just what's needed. And this time the waves, the, the lines of American marine infantry uh, moving through wheat fields are, are literally scythed down. They get no more than halfway across the field and over a thousand casualties in a matter of minutes. It's a, it's a true disaster for the marine brigade. And this sort of attack goes on for two more days. The regimental officers are starting to ask for more fire support. In particular, one of the brigade commanders, John Lejeune, a name we'll mention several times, becomes firepower conscious, and mercifully he becomes the division's commander in July of 1918. He noted, the reckless courage of the foot soldier with his rifle and bayonet could not overcome machine guns well protected in the rocky nests. The French were aghast at the American tactics. They couldn't believe their eyes. They reported, attacks must be conducted methodically by means of successive minor operations, making the utmost use of artillery and reducing the employment of infantry to the, to the minimum. Pershing, of course, was congratulating Harbert on his splendid work with all these lines of uh, soldiers advancing in the open. Now, to be fair to Harbert, he very quickly saw that his support for official American doctrine was horrendously expensive, and he even allowed units to abandon captured ground to give the artillery a free hand to soften up the next objective. So on the 10th of June, we have 160 guns firing 28,000 rounds of 75mm and 12,000 rounds of 155mm shell in support of a single battalion attack uh, into the Bellow Wood. Uh, they have a one-hour preparatory bombardment uh, going a risk, and a very brisk uh, creeping barrage with lots of machine guns firing in support. And the crescendo of fire as the infantry go in completely suppresses the defences. Most of the wood was captured without opposition, and the, the attackers lost only eight men killed and 24 wounded. The attacks are kept up against increasingly stiff resistance, and Harbert, I'm sorry to say, reverts to his belief in the great power of the, of the riflemen, uh, openly belittling reliance on artillery support. He called for the infantry to advance by the judicious use of sharpshooting snipers. After one terrible failure on the 23rd of June, one of his battalion commanders simply refuses a, an order to attack. Uh, and Harbord finally concurs. Two days later, they make an attack with a 13-hour preparatory bombardment and a steady creeping barrage, which finally clears Bellow Wood, taking over 300 prisoners, 19 machine guns, for only 123 casualties. So again, the, the idea is that the men on the ground are beginning to understand how these attacks need to be carried out. Happily, their next fight, taking the village of Vaux on the 1st of July 1918, was a textbook success with a really complex artillery plan, perfectly attuned to getting well-rehearsed battalions onto their objective. A 12-hour preparatory bombardment, uh, high use of mustard gas shells to seal off the battlefield, uh, an intensification of the bombardment just before the attack, and then a box barrage, literally sealing off the objective. and lots of support, lots of French air support, machine gun barrages, creeping barrages, the whole works of a, of a modern uh, attack in 1918. In the next big fight, the Americans were very much uh, at the disposal of a very fiery French general called Monguin, uh, a real uh, thruster, as we say. Uh, and again, t- to the delight of Pershing's open warfare school, he, he's, he's very much in favour of these, these wild attacks on the enemy. So at Soissons, in the great counterattack of the 18th of July, that finally wrests the initiative away from the Germans for the rest of the war, there was little artillery preparation, and the mass use of tanks uh, was, was, was in substituting to achieve tactical surprise. The 1st American Division would display a reckless courage and welcome the chance to push on beyond the creeping garage, barrage and get back into an open warfare mode. 
We should comment that here on the, the hopeless uh, staff arrangements. Uh, they've got an awful lot to learn here. In fact, the, the traffic jams behind American divisions were legendary. Uh, and while the infantry got forward in good time, all the auxiliary weapons and even the artillery were late getting into position. One of the soldiers said, we were short of everything except rifle ammunition. The French demanded a very high tempo of operations over the next few days, uh, again, setting very ambitious objectives. So we can't really blame the Americans for their soaring casualty lists. But we do see a tendency to let creeping barrages uh, start quite a long way forward. Uh, they, the Americans call it a safe distance. Uh, it, but it allows for fairly doubtful start lines. And, of course, it leaves a lot of German machine guns free to uh, play havoc with the American infantry. In a five-day battle, they advance 11 kilometres, take 3,500 prisoners, 96 guns. They lose about 7,000 men in doing that. But here's the thing, they, they lose 60% of all the officers engaged, and they lose 75% of all the field officers, major and above. So these are very gallant officers leading from the front, but paying a terrible price. And of course, their, their soldiers are in serious trouble with such a lack of guidance from officers after that. The final attack on the 21st of July had been much more uh, fire-heavy in its support, including a creeping barrage that started very close to the American front line and really searched no-man's land and the shell holes uh, and machine guns positioned there. Now the gunner, Charles Sumrall, that I've mentioned several times already, was the new commander of the division. And, and the conference he held to ana analyse the battle afterwards showed that the Big Red One had finally learned the truth about fighting on the Western Front. And he critically notes... The men were not allowed to advance by rushes and to take advantage of the shell holes made by our barrage, but were required to follow the barrage walking slowly at the rate of 100 yards every three minutes. The losses were very heavy. The men tended to bunch up using old conventional attack formations with no apparent attempt to utilise cover. When the barrage slowed, the attack became reckless. There was far too much of frontally assaulting machine gun nests and little attempt to outflank them. Even the keen open warfare brigadier Buck noted that his leading waves were not thin enough and he went on to work out for himself the following. Better still would it be for an irregular line of small columns at wide intervals, each small column uh, having a, an independent unit whose mission is to gain the flank or rear of the machine gun nests with the permission to advance rapidly or slowly according to conditions of the resistance met, always picking its way through barrages and areas swept by machine gun fire. These small columns of four, six or eight men uh, would have uh, automatic rifle teams or rifle grenades or hand grenades, but the absence of any or all of these should not alter the action or purpose of the group. And now you have American officers writing that their analytical reports saying that they're learning from the excellent Moroccan division uh, fighting to their right, progressing steadily forward under the eyes of their squad leader. And the first division say that the Moroccans taught them how to fight. Uh, the fact is, of course, if they'd read a, a British training manual called SS143, and I've never been known to give a talk without mentioning SS143, uh, it's, it's uh, on the training of the platoon for the attack. And we wrote this in February of 1917. And all these ideas that the Americans are picking up so painfully and at such high cost, we had codified as early as February 1917. Um, the Americans now confess that the standard practice of the veteran European armies was nowhere adequately treated in our training manuals. Summerall would now order that all future attacks would have trench mortars, machine guns, artillery forward observation officers and the use of cover integrated into the attack plan. He declares that the rifle is inferior to the light machine gun, that's heresy of course uh, to Pershing, and he insists that every infantryman is trained in its use. Again, if he'd read SS 143, he'd have known that at least a year uh, sooner. Uh, but for this division, uh, the mental revolution was complete. The second division had a similar experience, uh, thrown into the attack with impossible objectives, let down by their French tank support. Uh, the early morning success was unfortunate in a way because it led to renewed assaults later that day of the most gung-ho nature. Uh, again, trying to use linear waves of massed infantry to compensate for the complete absence of any infantry artillery cooperation. And the losses, including stragglers, were running at 50%, uh, and some units lost 80% in the attack. I mean, these are phenomenally high casualties. 
It is another salutary lesson in the wrong way to do things and the timely promotion of John Lejeune that I mentioned just now to be the divisional commander uh, means that things will change very much uh, after that. I'm going to bring in another type of American division now. This is the 26th, the Yankee Division. This is a division of New England National Guard. That's, um, you know, like our, our territorial force. Uh, they came over early in November of 1917 with absolutely no training in open warfare in, in America. Their commander, a chap called Clarence Edwards, uh, had come bottom out of 52 in his class of West Point in 1883. Not very inspiring. Uh, his division acquires a reputation as underachieving complainers. Uh, but the truth is that Pershing and most of the regular officers actually hate and despise the National Guard. Pershing used to call them my boy scouts. Uh, and all their faults are exaggerated and all their achievements are denigrated. Edwards himself came over in September of 1917 and spent time with our 16th Irish Division and the 51st Highland Division, and he completely accepts uh, the British style of warfare in 1917, and he's especially keen on our use of machine guns. The, the division passes immediately under French tutelage, uh, and they like the way that the, these Americans learn very, very quickly. Um, Edwards studiously avoided any instructions from American headquarters about rifle and bayonet drill, and he openly ridicules their training guides. Not a good move for him, of course. They're, um, they're in Hunter Liggett's uh, first corps, uh, fighting at Soissons. He's another man that hates the National Guard. Uh, and there is some very sloppy organisation to be criticised. It was noted that large numbers of water canteens had not been filled before the fighting, that despite being in the line for days before the attack, only one battalion actually jumped off at the correct hour. Uh, and when they do go in, some overzealous units greatly exceed their objective lines. They stray into French divisional zones next door, uh, and then they have to evacuate them, and they let the Germans back in, and they defeat the French attack, so it's all very messy, basically. Um, Liggett forces them to renew the attacks at very short notice. Uh, uh, court orders coming down from Corps make no mention at all of machine gun support. This is in the autumn of 1918, and a Corps could issue orders with no reference to the machine gun. But 26th Division, as I said, understands the use of that uh, weapon and writes them into their own plan. They're obliged to use linear wave formations at first, but it's not long before the junior leaders are reporting switches to short rushes of a few yards at a time, or a ragged filtering echelon after which my losses depreciated more than was expected. This division did start to come apart at the scenes later. A quarter of its 6,000 losses were actually men reported as going sick. Edwards was a really political general with one eye on the voters back home, and he did run a very loose ship. But he did understand what modern warfare was about. Uh, he came up with his own sort of uh, version of an expanding torrent where he, uh, with one infantry regiment attacking, backed by the entire division's fire assets. But they were ill-used by the American leadership uh, and they got a truly awful batch of uh, replacements to be absorbed for the next fight. Uh, and the, the performance of the division does decline quite dramatically. There's another kind of American division to talk about. There's the, this is the 77th, the Liberty Division. This, these are draftees of the National Army. If this is the America's equivalent of our Kitchener volunteers, except they're, they're drafted. Um, so they complete most of their training in the USA, so they come across thoroughly imbued with the ideas of open warfare. As you can imagine, they're terribly short of experienced officers and NCOs, and you're back to the worst days of the American Civil War, really, where the officer read up the night before what he's got to teach the men the following morning. Um, their commander, a chap called Robert Alexander, was a true believer in Pershing's official doctrine. His men were all New York City draftees, very, very new, very, very green. In fact, in the division, they spoke 43 different languages, really, from cosmopolitan New York. Uh, and in order to, to attempt to familiarise the men with army life, Alexander called the rifle squads gangs. You know, so we have a division here composed of the gangs of New York, <laughs> literally. Uh, they come over in May of 1918, and they get some practical tips from the British 39th Division, one that had been reduced to Cader uh, for training purposes after some heavy defeats in 1918. And it's their misfortune first to go into the line in August 1918 along a very difficult front, the River Vale, where part of their task was to hold a, a, a toehold of land on the German side of the river. They took 1,400 casualties very, very quickly. Uh, mainly due to very poor gas discipline within the division. 
One of the 77th Division's brigade commanders, a chap called Wittenmeyer, had a much better understanding of modern warfare than his chief, Alexander. Uh, he plans a very neat little operation, eliminating a German strong point by the massive use of artillery. And again, in, in Alexander's temporary absence, uh, Wittenmeyer was able to take over and fought a very well-planned supported attack in the town of Bazoche. Unfortunately, the, the attack broke down because um, this rookie infantry, very green infantry, uh, they were fired into the town by a very decent artillery plan, but then they failed completely in the mopping up of the town, so they're actually counterattacked from the front and from Germans emerging from cellars and taking them from behind. So you know, they've, got, they've got a lot to learn yet. Alexander returns to the division as an ardent admirer of the French thruster de Goutte. Uh, Alex, Alexander had done some service with the BEF, not as a student, but as a strident critic. Uh, he openly derides attacks heavily dependent on artillery fire and auxiliary weapons. The saving grace of this man is that he greatly favours decentralising executive command of his battles, which means that uh, you know, he leaves it to his brigade commanders to fight the battle. Uh, if he'd been left in charge, the, the, the losses would have been even worse. Instead, we have this delightful image of the division's uh, commander, a true believer in, in, in American official doctrine, overseeing a green division where the lower commanders very quickly realise that they are doing everything wrong and vigorously oppose the imposition of this faulty doctrine uh, from above. Alexander looks at the two failed attacks carried out in his absence. He refers back to Harwood's uh, dreadfully expensive attacks at Bellow Wood uh, and writes, The infantry soldier, using intelligently the firepower of his rifle, is still, as always, since the introduction of firearms, the, the dominant factor of victory. In war, the machine, while it may assist the man, can never replace him. The infantry rifle was again to demonstrate that fact when properly employed, it is still as powerful a factor in battle as it has ever been. So again, here's a man who's not really absorbing the lessons of the war in front of his, 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 his face. In the pursuit phase that closes these American operations along the Ain and Marne, Alexander, of course, is uh, all on for extremely lightly supported, vigorous action. He's, uh, he's fairly inexpert, men suffer for it. Even when they uh, do well, they push on too far and too fast uh, and are punished by the Germans for it. When Alexander finally organised a rolling barrage, he set it at such a cracking pace that his poor infantry just couldn't possibly keep up with it. And of course, that he can then turn around and say, look, creeping barrages don't work. So he, again, he reverts back to his uh, anti-artillery stance. When he's asked to participate in a prepared attack alongside French troops, his division orders simply regurgitate the official doctrine of his corps command with the unhelpful advice that troops should display the utmost aggressiveness, that any sign of weakening on the part of the opposition be immediately and fully exploited. Instead, he persuades his corps commander to slow, to allow him to press the attack with a, an audacity that borders on recklessness. Uh, because he wrote, an advance promised no greater loss than was already falling upon us, and there was reasonable prospect that such an advance and its possible consequences would bring about a withdrawal of the enemy. Beneath all this, his men are learning how to stay alive, largely by their officers ignoring most of his orders, uh, and by the men displaying a behaviour that uh, in the British Army would be called sticky. Uh, the, the men learned very quickly to, uh, to use cover on the battlefield. Both the 1st and 2nd Divisions have to absorb large numbers of uh, fairly green replacements to, to cover their high losses, uh, but they are very, the, the, the new replacements are carefully instructed by veterans in the new style of warfare. So when they go into the next great battle at San Miguel in September of 1918, um, it's in a, in a newer, more businesslike way. They've both got excellent commanders now, Samarol and Lejeune, uh, and they quietly ignore the, any directives from the American headquarters. For instance, they were told that mounted men would, would, could be very useful on, on the battlefield as uh, runners and conveyors of messages. Again, how anybody could say that in, you know, in the late autumn of 1918 uh, defies description. It has to be said that the orders from the army and the corps level were, to put it politely, a little confusing, talking about penetrating along lanes of least resistance, vigorously exploiting any success, uh, as basically trying to ape stormtroop tactics without any uh, of the really highly trained infantry that carry out that sort of thing. 
Now, George Marshall is now the Chief of Staff of 1st American Army, and he plans thoroughly giving divisions 10 days to train for the battle. He calls for a 22-hour artillery preparation. Pershing said he can't have any preparation at all. Marshall argues for 18 hours. Pershing finally allows him four hours. It's this sort of debate going on between the troops doing the fighting and the, and the headquarters. But we're looking, of course, at a battle that involves half a million Americans, uh, over 100,000 French troops, uh, 3,000 guns, 400 tanks, taking on about 50,000 German defenders. So the battle is only going to go one way, of course. But at the level of the division, the brigade and the regiment, it's a much more realistic approach being taken. Second Division issues an attack order that's 33 pages long, going into enormous detail, uh, flatly contradicting US Army doctrine on every single page of those 33 pages of orders. Uh, here was a massive artillery plan through every stage of the attack, incorporating rolling barrages, tanks, air support, smoke. The division does very well on the first day of the battle, uh, loses only 500 men taking all its objectives, and alone of all the US divisions, it does not need to be relieved on the first day and stays in action fact, until the 16th of, of September. The after-action reports speak of how well the waves of skirmishes followed by small columns worked, the excellent work of the light machine gun teams, uh, and how very little use was actually made of the rifle. Again, heresy as far as Pershing is concerned. Suggestions were made for improving liaison techniques, especially between the infantry and the artillery. Uh, and you won't be surprised to hear that the division earned a critical report from the Inspector General uh, of American Forces in its failure to, to correctly use open warfare techniques. Now, in the same way, the 1st Division plans its part in a, as a series of set-piece attacks uh, with uh, easily achievable limited objectives for the infantry, always covered throughout by the rolling barrage. Uh, they deliver a model of all-arms coordinated attack that achieves all its objectives by about 12.30 on the first day. Their corps commander, a chap called Dickman, was the worst kind of open warfare fanatic who now orders Summerall to renew the attack on the first day in order to achieve, achieve all the objectives on the second day. And Summerall just turns around and says, no, not going to do it. Um, not until the artillery redeployed re forward according to plan and then he would renew the attack. Now Dickman, unsurprisingly, orders US cavalry into action to try and take these second day objectives. They're heavily defeated, of course. Later on, Summerall is lent on by army command and is very strictly ordered to renew the attack that same day. So he waits until uh, eight o'clock, uh, sorry, eighteen hundred hours, six o'clock at night, when it's getting dark, and then he sends the entire division forward in one great sort of slow grinding steamroller. So he's obeyed the orders, but not in the way that uh, Pershing intended. Our friend Edwards uh, of the 26th Division was a very keen supporter of longer bombardments, arguing that uh, uh, the, the need to upset the equilibrium of the Bosch in every way uh, before assaulting him. And again, he works plenty of machine guns, trench mortars and gas uh, in, into his combat plan. That they actually do, they do rather well on the first day. They actually do better than the famous French 15th Division on their right. They take all their objectives early. Pershing seizes on this and rewards them with a, well, by ordering them uh, to keep attacking all through the night uh, to seal off the German line of retreat. And this Yankee division does respond magnificently. It sees it as a chance to outshine, outshine Pershing's pets, which is what they call the 1st Division. Uh, and again, they, they advance nine kilometres, uh, take 2,500 prisoners for less than 500 casualties of their own. Um, Pershing tries to claim this as a vindication of his open warfare doctrine, but Edwards writes a report that denies that it was a rifleman's victory and praises the work of the, the light machine guns, the trench mortars, uh, infantry guns and gas troops. Edwards says, too much training cannot be given to platoons in manoeuvring while attempting to reduce machine gun nests. So all these American divisions are, uh, they're learning to stop sending their infantry for strolling forward in linear waves, and they're using small unit fire and movement tactics, outflanking local opposition, maintaining good liaison between all the supporting arms. The whole American army is then just given three weeks to uh, shift its centre of operations to the worst terrain in France, the famous Meuse-Argonne Forest, um, a long-planned operation uh, that, uh, because it comes so soon after the Saint-Mihiel fighting, all the veteran divisions that have been involved in Saint-Mihiel don't have time to redeploy, so the battle is opened by a, a set of completely new divisions going into their first real battle. 
uh, and they have a, a terrible task ahead of them. Um, they're being asked by Pershing to surge across 16 kilometres, 10 miles of the worst terrain in France in just two days. They've got to break through three defence lines, including the extension of the Hindenburg line. Uh, the attackers will obviously outrun their artillery support quite early on, but Pershing said he counted on the infantrymen to use their own skills and weaponry to fight through the enemy main line of resistance without much, uh, if any, artillery fire. And again, this is happening in September, October 1918, which is, it's, it's, it's staggering. It's, it's, it's almost an unbelievable approach to warfare at this stage of 1918. Uh, once again, and almost fatally, the sheer scale and violence of the opening attack sees the Americans make some very good advances. We have to remember that the first couple of kilometres of any German position is a very lightly held outpost line anyway to absorb the attack. Um, the battle then degenerates into a series of, uh, of uncoordinated divisional level struggles. Attacks are being ordered simply to keep the pressure up on the enemy regardless of what artillery is available. Samuel, who is now a corps commander with his old first division under him, sets his divisions uh, to grind their way forward using maximum firepower with artillery and all the support weapons at his disposal. His organised attacks uh, utilise infantry in individual groups going in behind massive bombardments. And it's ironic that Pershing's pets, the 1st Division, flatly reject his doctrine all along the line. Again, 2nd Division comes in to attack a formidable position called the Blancmont Ridge. Uh, after the French commanders admitted that their small divisions were not up to the job. Uh, and this is possibly the, the most carefully planned and fire-heavy infantry uh, a, a divisional attack of, of, made by the Americans during the entire war. And the artillery plan was a miracle of planning, of converging fire from two directions, rolling barrages, standing barrages, giving the infantry lots of, uh, giving the infantry the, the ability to resume and redirect the creeping barrage. That's something British infantry often asked for but weren't given. But uh, Summerall is managing to give the American infantry control of the creeping barrage. And of course they've got machine guns, trench mortars, the whole sort of modern panoply of war worked into the plan. On the 3rd of October they stormed the ridge without serious loss. Pétain and Gouraud are delighted. Lejeune is awarded the Légion d'honneur. It's exactly the sort of battle that Pershing hates. Um, Lejeune has the moral courage to refuse to renew the attack that same day. He tells his French overseers that if they insist, he will appeal higher up the chain of command uh, and, and, uh, and not make the attacks. Our old friend Robert Alexander of the 77th Division, uh, he lurches on into a, into a really extreme open warfare rhetoric. He's actually worse than Pershing, if possible. Uh, he actually calls our auxiliary weapons mere adjuncts of the infantry. Uh, the riflemen are called upon to use their aggression to build a firing line to achieve fire super superiority. That's straight out of the pre-1914 uh, training books that all the other Allied armies had rejected completely. The division is only saved from annihilation by his propensity to delegate. His critics, his critics call that an abdication of his responsibility, uh, but even his own staff uh, are passing on different ethos to the brigades and the regiments. Uh, so although Alexander is demanding these open warfare attacks, his staff are actually saying, remember the men cannot do anything against material. Against wire entanglements, artillery preparation is necessary to open the road to the infantry. Otherwise the infantry will be needlessly sacrificed. But in his post-war memoirs, Alexander boasted that he had learnt very little in the war. Uh, he, he, what he meant was he, he didn't need to learn very much because he knew how to do it before he went into the fighting. As I said, luckily uh, for, his, uh, for his division, his officers and men learnt a very great deal during the war uh, and made sure they uh, improved the position. I'm going to move on now to, towards the end. Um, <coughs> So we have this picture of the American divisions actually fighting in a thoroughly sensible way with fire-heavy uh, preparation and, and support, uh, and flatly in contradiction to the open warfare demands of their headquarters. Um, the, res the response by headquarters to these fairly, fairly successful American attacks now are memos coming down saying, you didn't send forward individual field guns with your attacking infantry as ordered. Uh, as if Summer or the great gunner was going to break up his artillery batteries and feed guns forward uh, to the, into the front line in support of his infantry. 
the criticism of previous operations that so little was made in use of the rifle and all other infantry weapons must be repeated. The infantry does not use his rifle enough. He is too prone to leave the whole matter of fire superiority to the artillery. <laughs> Uh, this is not in accordance with American tradition or American doctrine and deprives the infantryman of the most efficient single aid to his advance, his rifle. So this is now, we're, we're now looking at the end of October into November of 1918. As the war is bringing to, coming to a close, Pershing is still insisting that the American infantryman can do it all just with his rifle, that he doesn't need artillery. It's extraordinary. I mean, to the bitter end, uh, he insists on this uh, pre-war obsession with what is a completely outmoded doctrine. And all the best American divisions go ahead and fight the war in their own way, in flat contradiction to this uh, doctrine. So perhaps you won't, I'm, I'm concluding now, you won't be surprised to know that after the war, Pershing fought what he called a rearguard action against those officers whose understanding of doctrine was overly influenced by their recent experiences. <laughs> <laughs> what else are armies supposed to do if they don't learn from their recent experiences? Um, he's in very good company. A, a, a US infantry captain could write in that same infantry journal that I quoted from 1914. This is in 1922. Okay? The fame of the American rifleman is traditional and historic. The effectiveness of the rifle on the American frontier is well known, and the story of the American rifle recalls such types as Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, and Kit Carson. It is an American tradition that our rifleman does not shoot at random. He picks his man, and the direct aim of his rifle speaks certain death. And this, this is in 1922, after all the experience they've been through. Uh, it actually says, all auxiliary weapons of the infantry are not mobile enough to keep pace with the rifleman. So... In 1920s, they tried to turn the clock back to before 1914. They, they fail, of course. I mean, the American army of the, first, of the Second World War and of later wars uh, is very heavily dependent on the uh, power of modern weapons. Shock and awe is the name of the game in the American army today. Thank goodness. Thank you very much. <laughs> You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>